Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. This month's selection is Tanya James's historical fiction novel, Loot. It takes place right around the 1700s in Mysore, India, and our main character is Abbas, a young and talented woodworker who is summoned to the Sultan's palace to help a French expat build a mechanical tiger. It's about Abbas and his journey across the sea, but it's also about ambition and colonialism and love and how history is remembered. That's all I'm going to say for now, but this is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what happens, go listen to our author interview in the feed because we are going to get into it. I am super excited to introduce you to our panelists this month. With us, we have the author of several books, including most recently our March book club pick, The Boarding School Murder Mystery Novel. I have some questions for you, Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for coming back. Also here is Samir Pandya. He is the author of another Nerdat Book Club book, Members Only, which we chose approximately 10,000 years ago, back in August of 2020. Samir, welcome. Hey, Greta. Nice nice to chat with you again. Yes, nice to have you. You also have a book coming out next year called The Boys, which I'm very excited to check out as well. So congratulations on that. Thank, Thank you so much. So, Samir, is this the sort of, like, I definitely pressured you into reading this one. Is this a book that you would have picked up on your own? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, and and I didn't, there's no pressure at all. Pressure is a strong word. (laughs) Pressure is a strong word. You know, request is, I think, maybe a different word. There you go, there you go. I I was happy to take up the request. You know, I mean, and I think we can, I'm sure we will get into it, but it, it is... I find myself not usually reading f- historical fiction, mm. and this is certainly that uh, with all the kind of bells and whistles that make good historical fiction good historical fiction. And so I think yeah. uh, I was particularly kind of glad for it, right? It's because I think, you know, even in all sorts of layers, I think Tanya James knows what she's up to in where she sets the book, at what time she sets the book, and, you know, of course... The terrific title, which kind of, you know, in, in some ways, like mm. alerts us to the fact that this is this kind of current reading of these kind of past, you know, whatever, you know, both the piece that's in the VNA and also this history where all of this comes up. Yeah. So uh, I, I would, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled I read it. I'm really excited to kind of chat about and work through these characters. Yeah. 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 There's a lot to unpack with this one. I would love to know first, though. I was really surprised to learn that this the mechanical tiger was actually a real thing. Did you know about that ahead of time, Samir? I, I, I did not. I mean, I, I, you know, as I kind of 
dug through it a little bit. You know, I've been, I think it's at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And I've yeah. certainly had the experience of walking through that place thinking, oh, this is some great stuff they ended up with, you know. They ended up with. That's a nice way of putting that. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Uh, it, 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 it's not a surprise that's a real thing. But I did not know. Um, I mean, I knew a bit about Tipu, uh, but I did not know the particular details of this particular piece. Mm-hmm. What about you, Rebecca? I mean, it's such a fascinating starting point for, for a novel. I didn't know about this either. Here's the funny thing. I, you know, a lot of historical fiction, you go into it basically knowing what happened in the end because you know, mm. well, they didn't kill Hitler or, well, you right. know, the Civil War ended this way or whatever. Um, with this one, you either know or don't know that this piece ended up in the V&A. Even if you know, that's not a huge tell. It's not like, oh, well, so clearly we know how this guy's life is going to turn out. It's Mm -hmm. just this one thing. And there's this mystery then of like, well, you know, this has been commissioned by the Sultan. We know about British imperialism. We can kind of figure out what might have happened. But, you know, the the steps to get us there, um, that's, that's all you know, completely a blank. Unlike, like, I'm writing a novel about Helen Keller. I'm not. But, like, you know, writing a novel about <laughs> Helen Keller and, like, there's, there's only certain ways you can deviate and we basically know how her life went. It's, it's partly there's room for invention, I think, because we don't really, people don't really know the full story of this thing. But it's mm-hmm. also that even that the people who do know what there is to know are probably few and far between. It's interesting to think about your point, Rebecca, with uh, historical fiction, though, because... It does remind me of often if I'm reading really good historical fiction, I am some, I'm occasionally tempted to Google something so that I can learn more about it, but I don't want to know what happens. So that's usually, you know, and it's always so funny because I'm like, Greta, like you can't call this spoilers. But in that context, I think it really is like I don't want to spoil the story. But I think this really is one where you could Google Tipu's Tiger and because she has created enough of a world around it, you wouldn't spoil the story for yourself if you learn more about it, which is kind of cool. So, Samir, what struck you about the genre itself? I mean, I think one thing that I found so fascinating about it is that it is literally about such a long ago and far away place, but it still felt so close all the time. Like the word I keep thinking of for it is proximity. Mm-hmm. Did that strike you too about it? Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, what's interesting about, I realized as I was reading this book about a work of historical fiction that's set in a different country that is speaking a different set of languages, right? So that presumably they're speaking Kannada in in Mysore, that there is French being spoken, right? So there's what's Mm -hmm. an interesting feat with the novel is that it's a movement across time and language, right? And so that that, that was what I found really intriguing, right? There's a, a, a moment, you know, there's that, you know, this tendency when you're, kind of dealing with kind of non-English languages is to italicize the word, right? And there's a, mm. a there's that moment when I think one of the characters says shabash, right? Which is, you know, good job. Um, mm. I, early in the novel, right? Which is, and it's italicized. And it's so interesting. I'm like, it, it's so fascinating that this particular word is italicized because if this was a contemporary English novel where a character says shabash, you know, which is a kind of a, you know, South Hindi word, right? You mm-hmm. wouldn't understand why it would need to get italicized, right? But 
all of this is coming through English, right, as, as the novel itself. So that's what I found as the kind of this really interesting balancing act that the novelist is performing here, right, which is traditionally yeah. in the historical novel, you're just saying, okay, this happened a long time ago. I'm not going to pretend to speak or to write like how they would have spoken. I'm just going to be very mm. contemporary in, in, in then kind of signaling that, this is actually a book about 2023 as much as it is a a book about the late part of the 18th century where this book takes place, right? Yeah. She's not writing this book from the point of view of 2023. She's writing it from the point of view of being right there. However, it is still extremely relevant to where we are in this day and age right now. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that that's what I was taken with the, with, with the writing particularly early on, right? Where I'm like, oh, I'm in this you know, Tipu's court. And I am kind of getting, I'm getting a sense of it. And I'm getting a sense of what it might look like to be a young, you know, Muslim artisan who's suddenly like thrust into the space and is, you know, is being told, please make this right. Or you will, you know, you, you, you will die. Right. Or that, 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 that right. all of that, it, it felt very evocative. And I think this is where I, I don't, I mean, this is where the magic of the novel happens, right. Which is that it is both yeah. of its particular moment that she is kind of writing from and the, you know, and there is a ton of course that she's saying about 2022 and 2023, right. Our contemporary mm-hmm. moment and how we think about this particular history of India that she's trying to work through here. For sure. So, Rebecca, you have written historical fiction, though your work is generally a little more recent than as far back as Tanya went. How the hell did she do it? That's a great question. You, you t- you're you the one who interviewed her about it. Let's, you know, <laughs> tell, tell, you tell us. Um, I think I will say this. Something I admire across her work is and this is this is it's it, this is such a, it sounds like such a specious compliment because you could say this about almost anyone, but I, I can't emphasize how much I mean this. Her <laughs> use of the single detail to evoke yes. worlds. And you can say that, you can you like look at a high school's story and be like, great use of detail. I, that's, I, I, but I mean that on the most profound level. I think within historical fiction, there's certainly a belaboring of details that can be done that often feels didactic, mm. that feels very much catered to the modern ear. Like you're reading something and someone's like, you know, her heels clacked on the wooden sidewalk. It's like, well, but if we're actually <laughs> in this time, we know the sidewalks are wooden. What else would they be made of? Well, who are you telling that they're wooden? Well, you're telling me and I'm not in the book. Right. So what are you doing here? Right. In, you know, not, she has great restraint. She clearly knows a lot more than she's actually saying on the page, but it's yeah. because she's able to, use something like a toy, like, you know, these little objects, these Mm -hmm. conversations, she doesn't have to do all of the work of situating us historically, contextually, because she's giving us just enough. We're going to get it right, but we're going to do the work ourselves. No, I think you're right. I think there's a sparseness and a warmth at the same time, which is kind of a fascinating combination. So I would love to talk a little, too, about the narrative structure, because as I mentioned, I mean, a boss, I think, really is kind of our main character. But we do end up encountering the points of view of a number of other people who are connected to the tiger in some way. I think you could argue that the tiger really is our through line, except there is that really interesting diary section right in the middle as a boss is crossing the ocean, which I thought was really fascinating and worked really well 
for like the severe tonal shift that takes place between India and France. Samir, what did you think in general of the structure? Did it work for you? Yeah, no, it, it was, you know, it, it is interesting and like, you know, it was, you know, I, I didn't see the, the stitching, right, in the movement from one mm. point of view to another, right? Where I was like, oh, now we're, we're somewhere else, right? And I think we get also another kind of long section of the diary of who I can't, I can't remember whose diary it is towards the end, right? Which is, I, is it perhaps the, and it's one of the, it's Lady Selwyn's husband or somebody's kind of diary oh, where, yeah. where we're like, oh, this is com- a completely different voice, right? Not a young voice or n- none of that. So I, you know, I, I really appreciated that movement. And, you know, in some ways there were, in those point of view shifts, there are just so many novelistic decisions that you see her making, right? Which is, in mm-hmm. some ways, one of my, my earlier thought with this, as I as I was reading through it, which was, I want more Tipu, right? I want more of that mm-hmm. point of view. And I think the great decision she makes is, you know, which is a, a kind of a decision that you end up making in historical fiction when you when you have such a a character that is so well known to history, which is that right, I can either right. occupy this point of view or I can occupy the point of view of someone we, we don't know at all. Right. And, right. you know, obviously in some ways, um, you know, and I, I mean, this is going back to our VNA conversation. I'd be curious of who the VNA marks as the kind of the creators of this piece, right? If that, if there's a name associated with it, or it just says my source circa 1798 or something, right? And if that is in fact the case, that's what's that much of a greater point of view decision here, which is, look, we've forgotten this artisan and I'm going to recreate this artisan for you. And this is why kind of, I'm that why choosing the genre of historical fiction is so important. I'm bringing you news that we do not have or we have not had thus far. Um, so it, it, in that case, but the point of view stuff worked really well for me, right? Like I, I found myself when I was away from Abbas, I kind of missed him because th- mm. there is like when when you have a character whose point of view, you know, who is... He's not exact. I mean, he's late adolescence, right? Where in some ways what is so great about that point of view is that he is seeing everything anew, particularly when yeah. he arrives in Europe, right? Where that he's had yeah. in some ways this kind of provincial growing up and that he kind of arrives in this radically different place. And so while that kind of that shifting work for me, um, you know, I just found myself, you know, as the novel progressed, feeling you know, wanting to spend more and more time and, you know, and perhaps we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I did find this kind of, in some ways, these two shadow point of views, right? Which is a boss on one hand and Rum, who is the character we meet mm. later, right? Which is in some ways yeah. on the two, you know, in some ways being brown in kind of colonial India in the 18th century, yeah. right? And what it feels like to be these two very different characters who who have, who are kind of, you know, are are part of this colonial history, but are part of this colonial history in very different kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about that. It's interesting. So I pulled up the, just the little blurb about Tipu's Tiger on the VNA website and it's Mm. fascinating how much of it is written in a passive voice. (laughs) It's really interesting, especially like the ruler was killed as the army swept into the city. Tipu's treasury was divided on the spot between soldiers 
like the whole thing is just like it was transferred to the South Kensington Museum. It's just that's mm. that's how they're characterizing it all. It was put in this museum by someone and we had no control over it. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> so, Rebecca, what did you think about narrative structure? I think that the mm. other thing that her willingness to jump around in point of view Mm-hmm. For, for one thing, I think it, it keeps it from being just, you know, not just, but it keeps it from being um, only a picaresque or like a Bildungsroman, right? Like here's the adventures mm-hmm. of this one person, which would have, all, as inventive and, and fantastic as it is, would have a sort of predictability to it. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we get when she's willing to jump and you never know where she's going to jump and you're like, for all I know, it's going to be, you know, 2023 and we're in your living room next. Yeah, I don't know where you're going. What it introduces mm-hmm. is um, like diegetic unpredictableness, meaning like mimetic unpredictableness would be like the unpredictableness of the story itself. Oh my God, here comes the army. Oh no, he died. We're going over here. Mm-hmm. Diegetic unpredictableness, meaning I don't know what this, where this narrative is going to go next. I don't know if we're going to jump forward or backward in time. I don't know if we're going to go over here. Oh my God, it's a diary. Wait, we're in this person's point of view. We've skipped time. So there's a, there's this other level of like, I'm in your hands. Um, I'm trusting, you know, we're on this voyage much like a boss being, you know, kind of like, Oh, I'm in a different place now. (laughs) You know, what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, That, I think, I don't know, I think it keeps us on our toes. I think it makes the entire narrative significantly more interesting just for being less of a, a, you know, less of a predictable through line on, well, you know, either he's going to succeed or fail and then either he's going to stay or go and then either he's going to be happy or sad and either he's going to find love Mm -hmm. or he's not and either he's going to die old or young. And there's a kind of limited set of choices if we just stay in the one person's life. Not that a book can't do that, of course, and still be surprising, but by introducing this right. other level of possibility, um, just in the, in the narrative leaps, she's keeping us off balance, which I think is really appropriate for this book. Yeah. I, you know, I was just, I, you know, Rebecca, that's such a, it's such a great point, right? Which is in some ways, as opposed to, you know, whatever, a novelist being the ethnographer, right? Witnessing what's going on. In some ways, she becomes the archivist, right? Says, hey, I'm going to pull this archive. I'm going to pull this archive. And Mm. I'm going to juxtapose these two archival moments. And you can deal with it in however you like, right? And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? Which is that there is, it it doesn't, it's so interesting, right? This idea of there being spoilers for this book. (laughs) I'm not sure if in some ways... I, I don't think there are spoilers for the book, right? And I think that's what's so no. fascinating about it, which is it, it is both it is both plotted and unplotted at the same time, right? Like there's nothing mm. I'm I'm not entirely sure that if I began reading this book on two hundred and fifty page two hundred and fifty, it would mess up my experience of mm. reading it from the beginning, right? And um that's a I I I don't know how, how someone does that, right? Like how do you do both things, right? Which is that provide the reader the necessary through line that they need to turn from page to page and yet say, yeah, it's not that even that important, right? I'm I'm giving you this, <laughs> but it, you don't need to do it if you don't want to do it, right? And I think that that's a really, um, th- that, that element, I, I, I'd never thought of it that way, Rebecca, which is this idea that a, 
a part of why we read is to be surprised at where we are going to go, right? And mm. she, she could have very well made a decision of, you know, Tanya James being at the VNA in 2019. And we'd be like, cool, I'm okay with that. You know, we've done all this other stuff. Yeah. There's still, within each individual section, there's still reasons, there's still forward momentum, right? It's like, it's not, it's not some experimental thing where, you know, we get a, an image on one page and then an image on the other. And then we're going to, you know, it, it, there, Abbas is in danger. The statue, the, the, the device, whatever you want to call it, is in danger. Um, we're worried about people. We wonder where people went. We, you know, there, there are these mysteries to solve. There are balls up in the air. There are reasons to keep turning the pages. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, that, that, is, that the picture is so much bigger than that. As Samir said, we could have gotten things in a different order and it still would have worked. Um, and so often you get one or the other. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I think I don't feel manipulated, right? Like I don't feel like I have to figure stuff out or something crazy is going to happen, which is that stitching point, right? Which is like, huh, it all looks really clean right now, right? And you, you can mm. kind of read through it. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back and talk more about loot. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I found myself very conflicted about Lady Selwyn and also her relationship with Rum. And I'm really curious what you two thought about that one. I... And I don't know how much of it is like just my own white lady lens. But when I first read it, I I thought she was a really tragic character. I think, you know, she's got all these ambitions. She was obviously trapped in a really miserable marriage for a long time. It does seem like she's found some solace with Rum, but also there are some pretty fucked up power dynamics there. It really wasn't until I listened to the audiobook the second time around. And then I was just like, oh, this is all very toxic. I love that she managed to capture that much nuance in the character, but I'm curious how how you two read her specifically, but also just that relationship and and Rome as well. A, a couple of quick things, which is, you know, to your earlier question, Greta, which is, it is, you're totally right, right? That we don't have novels about kind of what these brown and black folks were doing in England and France and in the colonies, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, mm-hmm. this is the, 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 this quote, I think Rum says it, right? We are here because you were there, which is this yes, quote. which is a real quote from an activist, no, right? No, to- and it is a quote, I mean, it, whatever, in a different life, you know, I, I kind of studied post-colonial, you know, did post-colonial lit and mm. that, that was always this phrase, right? Which is, you know, there's this one of these kind of post-colonial kind of criticism books from the early 90s called The Empire Writes Back, right? And I think this phrase has always been there, right? As a response by most kind of the, the, the folks that came to England after decolonization, right? When they were faced with this idea of go home, they'd say, we're here because you were there. Right now, mm-hmm. it's a phrase I've heard for so long. It is such a powerful, evocative phrase. 
it's of course fascinating that it's placed, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's Rum who says it, right? And mm. it, in some ways, I found Rum's character so, I, I, I think, Greta, I think you're spot on, which is it, it, it feels like the Lady Selwyn has a really icky, complicated power over him. And yeah. I think it also speaks to the particular historical moment that he doesn't have the power to say, this is icky, I'm not doing this anymore, right? I'm out. I'm yeah. out, right? Yeah. Which is he is literally in the shadows, right? That that is the, 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 the space that he is given to occupy here. And so yeah. the juxtaposition of him voicing, which is, I think, this really powerful decolonial cry of the second part huh. of the 20th century while being this character that's in fact quite hemmed in in the historical moment that he's in is this fascinating thing, right? And I think this is to our point of yeah. view conversation, which is, you know, it, 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 it could, this could be a book that's twice its size, right? If she gave yeah. a fair shake to each and every one of these points of views, which is a full compliment to her, which is like, I want more of rum. I'd read an entire yeah. 100-page yeah. point of view with his journey and kind of what all of this looks like, right? That there's some kind of interesting kind of Ishiguru feeling about him, right? Which is this, he is this figure in this kind of English estate who is the help, right? And kind of the, there is this whole kind of inner life that the help has that we don't really get to. And so, right. um, and, 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 you know, in contrast to Abbas, who is, you know, has a remarkable bit of agency in this book, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. In his, does. you know, in the travels that he does, and that the second half of the book, you know, becomes a little bit of a caper, right? And he is at the center of the caper, right, trying to get this thing back. So um, those two yeah. kind of characters together, I found really quite fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. I loved the conversation they had. I also thought it's such an interesting example of the fact that there are just no. Like you can't make a good choice in in the circumstances that both of those characters were put in, really. I mean, I think a boss definitely can do more, but he's still very hemmed in in a lot of different ways, of course. Like he's pretending to be a valet to be there. I, I'm always interested in, in in really, really good books like this one, the different mm. levels and kinds of power that different people have in different situations, mm. right? Mm -hmm. so that knowing someone's true identity is a kind of power. Knowing the plan is a kind of power. Obviously, wealth and, you know, like, um, whiteness and Britishness, whiteness, you know, these are yeah. all, you know, very obvious forms of power. There's There are different sexual forms of power. There are, there's the power of who's literally stronger, you know, just, just many, many different things, not all on the same level, right? You can't equate uh, knowing the secret with like literally being the person who's keeping these people as servants. But um, I think there's a flattening sometimes of some of that that happens mm -hmm. um, in literature, um, maybe out of a, you know, a fear of telling too complex a story sometimes, right? Um, a fear of like, well, if I if I show this person having any power at all, it's going to seem like I'm saying they had power when really they didn't. And so I can't show them having any power. When, you know, mm -hmm. the mess of real power dynamics, the mess of real life um, are going to be what makes a book great. And she, you know, she, she is willing 
to get into that. And it's it also, there is also within a text, the power of who has a voice within the text, right? Who's, yeah. Whose point of view do we get, um, uh, you know, and, and for how long and how honestly and how directly. Um, that is, that is, you know, not, not a real life form of power, but, but within the text, it's a form of power. Whose ear, who, who has our ear, right? Um, she doesn't seem to have any fear in approaching any of that, um, in approaching mm-hmm. moments when power might shift, in, in addressing um, just, you know, different, different forms of power, including the ones that are not the prevalent one in the room. And that, that is, I think, a lot of the reason that we could spend forever reading this or read, you know, seven times as long a book. <laughs> well, I think, too, I mean, pretty much every character that we spend any amount of time with is a victim of some sort of system, is marginalized in some way. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, Rebecca. I think there's so much nuance to being able to acknowledge how trapped Lady Selwyn is but also how she is then subsequently trapping other people as well. And, you know, it would be tempting um, to paint a really flat picture of her um, as being only her privileges. And, you know, not, not often for the author, not because that's really what they feel, but because they're so worried that if they don't portray it just that way, readers either won't get it and will think, you know, or will accuse them of not getting it. And the confidence to show the powers both that someone has and does not have. And, and, and Lady Selwyn, in many ways, is an easy target, which she does not aim at, right? Which is what I appreciate, mm. which is it, it'd be very easy in some ways for her to be the, to, to bear the responsibility for the loot that is at the center of this book, right? Mm. And there's just a lot of looting going on, right? Like it is, yeah. there, there, that, that's, that's another thing that, you know, it, was I, I found so fascinating, right? Which is that, you know, Tipu is engaged in his own form of loot. You know, he's doing, you know, he's engaged in all of these different wars and I think the British are encroaching and he's trying to figure out how to stay in power. So he is, of course, I mean, so th- th- I think that that is, um, that, that is just this incredible strength of the book, right? Which is that a lot of these, that's, they're all very rounded characters, right? That there's no flatness to these characters, which I really yeah. appreciate. For sure. So before I let you go, we have our ridiculous rating system, which is, of course, completely arbitrary. We thought this time around we would do automatons between, say, one and 50 automatons. Rebecca, how many automatons would you rate this book? Oh, my God. I know. I'm a monster. No, I, I love it. One in 50. See, the thing is, okay, if you say one in 10, it's like, oh, 10, right? If you say one in 50, it's like, well, God, like, what, am I saving 50 for, like, <laughs> Hamlet and, like, one, you know, like, what, what, what's a 50? Okay, okay, let's do 10. Let's do 10. Oh, then 10. I, I accept your edit. Okay, then 10, then 10. 10 face-gnawing automatons. Ooh, okay, you're going for the face-gnawing. I love it. What do you think, Samir? Yeah, no, that is, you know, Greta, another podcast entirely about kind of like how many numbers, like when you choose a scale, right? Like I think if you choose the 1 to 50 (laughs) scale, it's just asking for things (laughs) that, you know, it's too early for us to figure out. Okay, okay, I appreciate this. But given that it is early, like totally a 10. Right. I, and I think it, it, I, I totally feel comfortable giving it 10 because it is like, um, you know, for me, I think 
a 10 is based on my desire to read the thing the second I finished it. Yeah. And, and I had a pretty yeah. big desire to read the thing because I missed details, right? And I think, you know, yeah. to Rebecca's terrific point, which is it is never didactic. And yet the details are yes. there if I want them, right? Like I, I kind of, yeah. and that's what I really appreciated about the book is that I did one layer of it. And now there are a couple of other layers for me to dig through. Yeah. And I'm happy, I'm, and I'm happy to dig through them. Well, Rebecca, Samir, thank you both very, very much for coming on. This was such a lovely conversation, and I appreciate both of your insights so much. Absolutely. That was really fun. Thank you so much. All right. That is it for this month's book club. Thank you, as always, for listening and reading along. I am so excited about our August pick. It is The Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland. It is a memoir by Andrew about losing his sight. It's gorgeous. It's fascinating. I can't wait for you to read it. I can't wait for you to hear the author interview with him. That's coming up a week from today, the first Tuesday in August, which just happens to be the first day in August. So take a listen to that. And of course, as always, we would love to hear your thoughts on the books as well. You can record a little voice memo of yourself on your smarty phone and then email that file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Have we announced our September pick yet? Should we do it right now? It's probably not a surprise to most of you because I've raved about it probably like 15 times on this show already, but it is Angie Kim's Happiness Falls. So get on those wait lists now, y'all. Now is the time. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banasak. We will see you this Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.